across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Well, well, who would have thought it, eh? Who would have thought that the man responsible for recommending the lockdown didn't think that it applied to him? It takes a special kind of stupid for someone who is supposedly intelligent to behave like Professor Neil Ferguson has. He's managed to turn a viral pandemic into some kind of 1970s sex farce called Carry On Corona. Thanks to married mother of two, Antonia Stats, the lockdown professor has somehow managed to completely undermine government policy. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Health Secretary Matt Hancock, and even his own recommended uh, ideas about the lockdown. That's right, the man who said half a million people could die from COVID-19 decided it was a great idea to invite his mistress to drive across London, not once, but twice, for a bit of horizontal refreshment in what he is now calling an error of judgment. And as if the story needed any extra spice, it turns out that Ms Stats is an open man. Marriage. Campaigns for climate change is a massive anti-Brexit demonstrator as well. For heaven's sake, you really couldn't make this stuff up. Uh, is the bloke who writes the thick of it, uh, or in the thick of it even, uh, involved in this? Or a Citizen Smith or something like that? 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, back in the real world, it's Prime Minister's question time today. Uh, this time with the Prime Minister in situ. For the first time up against Keir Starmer, we shall see how Boris decides to deal with the Labour leader in the newly paired back surroundings of an empty chamber. And we will bring you that live, of course, from midday. Uh, we want to hear from you, though, because you are the eyes and ears of the independent republic. Tell us what is going on in your world today, what you're hearing, what you're being told by your employers, uh, because there's a lot of hinting going on in the press this morning that Rishi Sunak is going to end the furlough system by July. He wants to encourage people to go back to work. We're going to hear more about that as the days uh, go on this week. Possibly Thursday we'll hear something, and certainly by Sunday we expect Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, to bring us news of how the lockdown will be lifted. Coming up... We'll also be joined by travel guru Simon Calder, who brings us the lowdown on the lockdown relaxation for travel and which airlines are likely to be back in business any time soon. And on homeschooling today, we're going to be learning how to make pasta at home from scratch. That's going to be fascinating. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. There's been a lot of hand-wringing from the lefties today, saying, why are all these people picking on uh, Professor Neil Ferguson? It doesn't matter uh, that he was having an extramarital affair with a married woman who lives in a big £1.9 million house in South London and is in an open marriage and is from Germany and is a climate change activist and is very possibly in the pay of George Soros. None of that matters, of course, only the fact that he broke the lockdown. Oh, really? Well, let's ask Stuart Jackson, former MP, uh, former special advisor, of course, to David uh, Davis. Stuart, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I mean, I didn't think this story could get any more ridiculous, but uh, with every sort of detail that I read last night, I was finding myself quite incapable of believing my eyes. Well, I think you're being a bit harsh because he didn't leave his house uh, and obviously he, he took home workout to, to new lengths, really, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> with with Ms. Stat. Yes. But, but seriously... Um, I think this is an issue that is worthy of being on the front page of the Telegraph because it does show hypocrisy. And that's what the public hate most about politicians and yes. government. They hate hypocrisy. Yes. But actually, it also refocuses again on Neil Ferguson's model, not not the one that he was meeting in secret. <laughs> but the, um, the model he's used and his past history of... Uh, prognostications and projections which yes. haven't always been accurate. Well, and to I be honest, I mean, looking back at his track record, Stuart, I'm struggling to find any place where he's been accurate at all. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, it, you have to get these things as right as you can when you are euthanizing the economy where you're putting the lives of people uh, in, in cold storage for literally weeks and months on end. And Actually, it was a very interesting article also in The Telegraph yesterday about the long-term impact of the lockdown on, for instance, children's education right. and uh, GDP, um, you know, economic activity. And I do think that we really seriously need to question 
the projections that were made at Imperial College uh, and really think very seriously, as I think the Prime Minister will on Sunday, about a, a phased incremental end to the lockdown because people are, despite what they tell the polls, I think people are getting... Um, very restless now yes. uh, as they see their mortgages, their jobs, their pensions, their savings uh, irredeemably uh, affected uh, negatively. Yes, no, I think so you're absolutely I, I right. I think you will do that. And I think the, the point about this story, uh, as you quite rightly say, Stuart, is, you know, there are those who would seek to sort of dismiss the gutter press. I mean, first of all, the Daily Telegraph is hardly the gutter press and say, why are you going after this guy just because of his sex life? Nobody's interested in that. The point is, is that people's attitudes during this kind of situation are very different. And if you, like me, have not seen your children for six to seven weeks because you've been adhering to what you were recommended to do by no none other than Professor Neil Ferguson, and you see him, you know, willy-nilly, as it were, doing whatever he likes... Uh, and not bothering to pay attention to his own regulations, you start to think, well, what, well you know, who's the mug here? Is it me? And people who uh, have been tweeting me all through the night saying, you know, my special needs daughter has not been able to see her grandparents uh, or any of her friends because of this lockdown. Who the hell does this guy think he is? It has a massive effect on um, the general kind of um, malaise uh, of the nation. And people who right now have been not seeing their boyfriend or girlfriend or mistress or whatever are going to be doing it today. Well, exactly. And the other thing is you've, you've got you've got older people uh, who are suffering because yeah. in terms of mental health, loneliness amongst over 75s was a problem before in this country. Uh, it's a lot worse now. I mean, my father's 87 yeah. and he's been self-isolating for six weeks. So you haven't seen him, right? Well, I have seen him because, um, you know, I video uh, on WhatsApp uh, so I talked to him. Yeah, yeah, it's not the same. I mean, I've done that with my kids, but it's not the same. I miss them terribly. No. They miss me, you know? No. I think what sticks in my core, if I may say so, is that, you know, we're being lectured on good governance by Alistair Campbell. I mean, do we take this guy seriously? Well, I certainly he, don't. He was responsible for one of the most catastrophic and damaging foreign policy disasters that we've seen in this country, the, the lead up to the Iraq war and the lies and misinformation, for him to be lecturing the government on on, on what's good policy yes. is, is deep, deeply troubling and, and a great example of chutzpah. But yeah, I, well, he once, he once made the mistake of sitting in my tent of common sense in Westminster and accusing Boris Johnson of lying. Uh, I'm afraid I had to say, well, you're not bad at that yourself, Alistair, are you? What about the old dodgy dossier? And he had to confess. Well, he's a professor of mendacity, yes. uh, Campbell. He, he invented the whole concept of devious spin and manipulation and lies in, in government, I'm afraid. And, you know, the government would be well um, advised not to take any of his uh, views seriously. Mm. To be fair, and you don't get me saying this very often, but both John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, and Keir Starmer have behaved with laudable restraint in the national interest. Unfortunately, Campbell is not doing it. It's all about attacking the Tories and undermining Boris Johnson. Yes, absolutely right. And that is what I find quite remarkable. I mean, even old Carol Codswallop's been at it this morning, saying that, you know, this should not be in any way, um, you know, uh, a criticism made of Neil Ferguson just because he wants to do something in the privacy of his own home. You know, suddenly they're all hell fellow well met when it comes to adultery involving lefties. But when it involves Boris Johnson and having affairs and having children with other women, Women, you know, suddenly that's the worst crime of all time. Well, it's double standards, isn't it? It's it's uh, do as I say, not as I do. And, uh, you know, moral frameworks are for the little people, but for the erudite and, uh, you know, witty and well-connected lefties, uh, you know, that there's a different moral universe. You know, if I was Carol Codswallop, I'd probably be spending a bit more time with my lawyers. The, <laughs> yes, I think that's uh, probably Bank. true. I think that's it's probably true. Let's talk, a, let's talk a bit about the front page of the Times today as well, because they're talking about Rishi Sunak and having to move into a programme of, of removing, basically, the furlough situation, because obviously the furlough has worked very well, um, but there are now some people saying that it was unfortunately something which is going to create more dependence by, by, uh, by people who may not be able to go back to work. Well, I don't think it should be manipulated by companies who've got big cash reserves uh, and are paying dividends. I think, you know, bigger companies... I'm not talking about the Victoria Beckham example because that's a bit of an egregious example. But yeah. most companies where they can afford to properly pay their workers as we go back into the full market and commercial activity should do so. I think he's right to be looking 
at July because I think it will be catastrophic for the economy if in July we're still in lockdown. So I think that's good to aim for. Uh, my view is, look, the, the chances, if you haven't got a, a pre-existing medical condition and you're under 60, of getting uh, COVID-19 and dying are very, very small. It's less than 0.4% of people in that category. So we need to take those people who've got COPD, diabetes, stroke conditions and shield them mainly over 70 the rest people who are under 50 certainly probably under 60 mm. who can meaningfully go to work uh, obviously using ppe using masks and also safe spaces and dis social distancing should do so i think by the end of may because you cannot have a situation where you've got an extra six million people being supported by the state right. because the the cost of that and the impact long term on the economy will be catastrophic and it's just not sustainable. Well, that's the thing. And I suppose it like many things, which it's all very well to talk with hindsight, you know, they needed to be done at the time. I don't think there were any wrong decisions made at the time. There are, there's going to be lots of people going all the way back to January and asking what questions should have been asked and all of that. But, you know, the bottom line for me is, is that, you know, it was a good system in order to stop people from having to work. However, they now have to find a way out of it. And that's not going to be that easy, though, is it? No, it isn't. And it's as well also, Mike, if you don't mind, for me just to mention this, this figure that the lefties and people who are hostile to the government are using, you know, we've got a higher death rate than Italy. Yeah. Italy's substantially smaller population. We've got a capital city, which is at least twice the size of Italy's biggest city. We've got incidences of deprivation and obesity that you probably don't have in most of Europe. We've got a situation where we're a global hub for travel we've got overcrowded and dense urban areas. You know, there, there are other factors, and actually per capita, per 100,000, I think we're still either third or fourth in Europe. But obviously it's a stick to beat the government to say, you know, we weren't prepared, the government hasn't pursued the right policy, and now we've got the highest fatality rate. You know, if you look below the figures, it's not as simple as that. But in, in terms of the economy, yeah, I think, I think the government needs to take a sectoral approach. It needs to focus on those hardest hit, which is basically leisure, tourism, hospitality, aviation, uh, and and not not uh, put money into areas which haven't been hit, like fintech, finance, banking, insurance. No, exactly right. Also, I saw a Reuters story coming out of Italy about two days ago in which they said that Italy's um, death figure is way, way underestimating the actual truth of the matter and is likely to come out very much sooner rather than later with a much bigger figure because they just haven't been counting it right. So, I mean, there's all manner of different ways of comparing figures. Yes, and Italy had a special circumstance, as you know, and I think we might have discussed it before on the show, in that lots and lots of Chinese workers are involved in the fashion industry yes, in northern Italy. that's right. And they travelled from central China right through December and January to jobs in Turin and Milan. Uh, and that was a special factor that caused the exponential rise in COVID-19. So the point being, every country has its own... Uh, unique circumstances and as some of them people like Carol Sikora who is deeply respected as a cancer specialist who's been commenting a lot has simply said it's impossible to to compare every country because they count in different ways yeah. and they have different circumstances. Yes, absolutely right. And I mean, as far as the way that uh, the the pandemic now moves, I mean, it certainly seems as though all the indicators are going in the right direction. It certainly seems as though uh, and neither one of us are medical men. So there's no point pretending that we are. But we are told that the death rates are going down. We are told that the infection rates are going down. We're told that the very uh, um, important R um, number has gone down to something like 0 0.6 to 0 0.9, which means infections will happen less and less. So it's all kind of going in the right direction. It is, and I think what we need to do is look at the best practice from other countries, see how the, uh, the, the lockdown release in Italy, Portugal, Spain and Germany goes and pick off the best uh, uh, you know, exercises that they're, they're taking place there in releasing people back into the economy. Obviously, track and uh, trace and testing is very, very important, and we'll all be looking at the... Uh, pilot scheme on the Isle of Wight to see how that goes, whether that works or not. I think people forget when they criticise the government that just a month ago there was a very real risk 
that intensive care in this country would com- be completely overrun by mm. COVID and that cancer and other elective surgeries would be thrown out the window because of the focus on COVID-19. And that never happened. And I think the government should be given some credit for that. They, 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 they didn't save the NHS. The NHS staffed it. But they did do the right thing. And for people to be complaining, for instance, about Nightingale Hospital, oh, well, well it's empty, there's no people there. Mm. I think that's probably a badge of success. Well, it is. Failure. I mean, some people are saying, why not use it now for some of the other beds that, uh, that should be occupied by cancer patients? But, but again, I think as we've discovered through all of this, Stuart, you know, it's not quite as simple as that. You know, it's all very well for journalists like me uh, and, 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 and others to, to kind of be critical of what the government is doing and how the, the, the civil service is operating and all of that. But, I mean, what we are seeing here is unprecedented. And I know that people get sick of hearing that word. But, you know, it has been an incredibly massive problem that we have had to deal with. And I think we've dealt with it rather well. I do. And I just think people like Alistair Campbell, you know, they would have been on the airwaves in May 1940 in the Norway campaign saying, you know, those... um those paratroopers we were having to evacuate from Norway, you know, they, they've been let down by, by uh, Chamberlain yes. and Churchill, you know, where we, we need an inquiry. You know, this is a national uh, crisis. This is an international crisis. Well, it's an international crisis, crisis. isn't it? Yeah, we've never, we've never seen anything like this before. Do our politicians perfect? No. But actually, if, if they were that bad, they would not be registering record levels of support uh, as Boris Johnson, his government is and has been, Absolutely. much more incidentally than their most vociferous critics like Robert Peston uh, in the media and people like Channel 4 News and Newsnight, who people, frankly, don't trust anymore. Well, they really don't, and with good reason, to be honest. Stuart, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Stuart Jackson there, former MP uh, for the Tory party, former special advisor to David Davis, of course, uh, in the Brexit office. Lots, lots more to come. We've got uh, live YouTube uh, live streaming going on right now, so you can watch us as well as listening to us. There's massive amounts to talk about. We're going to talk about travel. We're going to talk about furloughs. We're going to talk as well uh, about the top government advisor, uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, who has resigned uh, as a result of not following his own advice. And what an absolute plank. And unfortunately for him, uh, his story came out just after we recorded Plank of the Week, uh, which is out there now both in podcast form and on YouTube. So you must watch that and listen to it later on. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots more for us to do today. We're going to be speaking to Anne Frank, CEO of Chartered Management Institute, the CMI, in the next hour because she's going to be telling us how managers are not terribly optimistic about the economy in the next six months. We'll also talk to her about the furloughing story, uh, which is all over the papers this morning. Taxpayer support for millions of furloughed workers could be cut amid fears of the scheme's rising costs. So come July, it might be all over. We've already got the first stage of the furloughing sort of running out uh, even as we speak. But let's talk about the travel business now, though, because Simon Calder, uh, our favourite travel guru, is here with us to find out uh, from him precisely what is going on out there because it's a bit of a mixed package i'd have to say simon a very good morning to you uh, i thought you were going to tell me mike what's going on out there <laughs> frankly it's an almighty muddle well it really uh, let is me isn't tell it? You- yeah. Um, so just to bring people up to date, the uh, British Airline Pilots Association believes that 23,000 airline staff in the UK have so far been told that they have lost their jobs. Um, we have heard uh, Virgin Atlantic saying yesterday it's going to close its Gatwick base. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm probably the only uh, old, only person old enough to remember they started there in 1984. Goodness um, me, you, yeah. were, you were still at school. If you, I you, wish you, that you, was you, true. I wish that was true. I'm afraid I was one of those people who used to sleep overnight at Victoria Station to get the Freddie Laker standby tickets in New York. No. I was. Uh, Crikey. Um, Yes, those those uh, (laughs) fantastic times. I can't wait to to catch up with you on that. And in fact, on that subject, actually, funny how things come around. Um, Gatwick is going to see this huge vacuum, Mm. um, some of which will be filled, I suspect, by Ryanair, some of which by Wizz Air. Um, but also, you might see that some airline comes in with a long-haul, long low-cost, no-frills uh, service, just like Freddie Laker promised back in 1977, mm. only this time they get it absolutely right. So I'm, I, I, it's absolutely terrible for the tens of thousands of fantastic people working in travel who are... Um, 
currently furloughed or um, in, in danger of losing their jobs. But yeah, it will come back. We are by nature as humans, we are restless, we're inquisitive, we're adventurous and we will go traveling again. But right now it's just awful, not least because loads of people who book trips are thinking, hang on, I gave you mm. all this money. Um, you said you'd give me a holiday. You haven't been able to give me that holiday for understandable reasons. Um, so why aren't you giving me my money back right now? Yes, and we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks telling people and getting advice from consumer organisations to say that, look, if you are owed a refund, you can get that refund because they are legally obliged to give it to you. But we'll move on from that because I've got other questions for you, Simon, this morning. Wizz Air started to fly to Spain, I understand, last week. What happens when you get to Spain? Does anybody know the answer to that question if you are oh, oh, yes, to uh go from here? Oh, oh, look, um, it, it's very, very straightforward, Mike. Um, these these flights are not for fun. They are um, for repatriation. They're for essential workers. They're mm. for anybody who can turn up in Tenerife and say, look, I'm a Spanish person coming home or I'm an essential worker. And look, I've got this um, letter of authorization from the Spanish health service or whoever to tell me that, that, that I need to travel. Um, however, what's in, and, and so nobody's traveling for fun. However, Wizz Air, um, once again, yesterday, just as Virgin Atlantic were announcing all those job losses, uh, came out and said, oh yeah, uh, we're launching six new routes from mm. Luton, um, starting 16th of June from uh, Luton to Faro in Portugal. And that uh, just just before the news, you were saying, yeah, what, what, what's happening? When are we going to be able to go anywhere? That's the strongest news I've heard so far, because follow the money, Mike, you yes. know that if they are saying we're going to launch this new route, then they presumably have been in some talks, which indicates yes. to them that um, second half of, uh, of, of uh, June, Portugal looks OK. Well, I mean, and I'd have to say to you, I have a friend who lives in Portugal and they're opening the golf courses this week uh, and they are going to be opening right. restaurants later on in May. So by June, it may well be that if you fancy getting the old golf clubs on the back, uh, spending a couple of days at Villa Moor and Quinta de Lago, you know, yeah. Bob's your uncle. Uh, yeah, and, and look, uh, of course, that is how Europe is going to look um, maybe in, in July, maybe in August, probably in September. And uh, you know, nobody, nobody quite knows how it's going to unlock. But we are now talking. The Greek uh, tourism minister has this morning been saying that we're hoping actually to get things really going in July. Interestingly, Wizz Air, um, four of their flights are to f uh, four of the Greek islands. Um, and I think, of course... Having seen, and I know that you've been discussing this, the image in, on um, social media of uh, hundreds of passengers on a plane and no mm. social distancing, yeah. we have to accept that social distancing and aviation are absolutely and fundamentally incompatible. It's not going to work. The airlines, the airports want to bring in all kinds of um, uh, requirements for temperature checks and masks, but that's not, if you look at the international um, medical advice, that's not actually going to do much mm. good. It's um, entirely about um, uh, uh, confidence and, and persuading people. Yes, and oh, I suppose look, um, you, you sit next to Mike Graham, he's got a mask on, he'll be fine. I mean, ultimately, of course, the only way that we're going to get through this is if you and I scrupulously wash our hands, as we've been told to since day one. And furthermore, you've got any faint symptoms. You do not go anywhere right. near an aircraft or any other form of transport. Well, I mean, or indeed, if the airlines find a way to regularly and, and re reasonably accurately test people before they get on the plane or ask you to have a test of some kind before you book your flight to show that either you've had the, the virus and you're therefore not transmissible anymore or something you know that may well be what they can do because in places like singapore for example they do that uh, before you go into a restaurant they've reopened restaurants but they have a little temperature check before you go in uh, and if you don't uh, uh, submit to the temperature check you're not allowed in and if you are over a certain temperature you're also not allowed in so i wonder if they could get some form of, of situation like that whereby you would just travel on the plane in a normal way because everybody would assume that you're fine uh, yeah, the trouble is, of course, um, the uh, uh, temperature checks won't necessarily pick everybody up. There'll be false negatives yeah, yeah, as well as false positives. And um, the if you look at what the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control and the World World Health Organisation say, they they're not not great fans of. Um, 
temperature checks or no. um, wearing face coverings. But um, I think that's the way we're going to be going. Yeah. And I mean, frankly, what, I find, it, what I find interesting, Simon, is, you know, in the olden days before COVID-19, we used to talk about before Brexit, you know, when life was <laughs> a little bit simpler. You know, I mean, you could get on a plane in Kennedy Airport or in um, Wuhan province and sit next to somebody who had some ghastly disease, which you would then catch. Um, uh, yes, of course. I know I mean, it's a bit different now, but is oh, it no, really? no, no, no. It's a really, really important point, Mike, and thank you for making it absolutely critical that we do not lose sight of the wider risks. Mm. And, for example, the uh, tourism industry in uh, Kenya is being destroyed, as you would appreciate, because yeah. nobody's going there. This is a nation that has to handle um, things such as, as uh, uh, malaria, the occasional um, uh, cholera outbreak, yeah. all kinds of, of nasty stuff going on relentlessly all the time. Yes. And we're not going because there's a concern about you know, what is, and I don't for one moment wish to diminish the tragic, tragic loss of life that we've seen. But on the scale of, of compared with um, uh, malaria, I can mm. be pretty confident um, uh, with a no medical background whatsoever. I can be pretty confident that um, uh, fewer people will die of COVID-19 this year very sadly than will die of malaria yeah. very sadly yeah i think it's partly the fear isn't it it's partly the kind of organized um lockdowns that have happened in, in practically every country in the world which have made it very difficult i'm hearing that greece uh, has been making noises about opening up and i've also heard that um or been told i know this for a fact that in austria they're going to be opening up the hotels towards the end of may um but who's going to be going there well, uh, that's a very good question. I've been doing uh, regular uh, Twitter polls, um, looking at July, actually, just saying you know, if, if the Foreign Office lifts its travel warning and the destination country lets you in, would you be willing to go on holiday in July? Mm. And generally, it's a large minority who will. Yeah. So typically between 42 and 45 percent of people. Um, I'm very much among them. You know, you, I'll be at the airport just in front of you with my passport. <laughs> I don't um, think I can be spared. I've got to bring the truth to the people, Simon. I don't think I can ah, leave my post yes. at this stage until things have quietened down a bit. Uh, yes. So, so um, look, uh, th there is going to be a great deal of uh, concern, of worry, of uh, people, particularly if they're in a risk group, thinking, I don't want to go anywhere near an airport or right. a cruise ship ever again. Thank you very mm. much. Um, and that, 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 that will transform travel. But I think for, for those of us who are lucky enough to be in reasonable health, I think um, there will be a spell in which the, the travel industry is muted. But then... Yeah, as soon as as soon as you come back with your holiday snaps, I'm going to be looking at those and think, oh, it looks great. Yeah, I wish I was sitting there by the bar, even though half the tables in the the restaurant are empty. Yeah, I still want to be there more than I want to be in uh, Cleethorpes. Yes. Not there's anything wrong with Cleethorpes. You I see, love Cleethorpes. you've got to be so careful nowadays who you who you slag off. I'm I'm actually <laughs> no. vicariously enjoying my old holidays at the moment. You know, I'll put the old yes. uh, I'll put the old slideshow on uh, and looked at my holiday in California. Looked at my holiday in Spain. Looked at my holiday in Greece. You know, and, and it actually yeah. it gives me a perverse amount of pleasure, I have to say. Oh, it does. And also, this is a great time to be planning trips and, and working out exactly. I mean, you, you know, there you are. You're looking at your holiday snaps and that's helping inform. So what did I really enjoy about yes. that? And how does that uh, make me want to plan my next trip? So it's it's a, it's a really good um, situation to uh, good, good to be able to plan. Well, can I just say while you are planning, this is for you and for all your lovely listeners. Yes, please. When you think, oh, great, our holiday in July is going to go ahead or whatever. Please go over to the drawer where you keep your passports. Have a look at them, particularly those annoying children whose passports seem to run out every yes, five minutes. Yes, I've just had to do one of those, yeah. Yeah. Okay, now at the moment, very sadly, the, the passport office says do not apply uh, for a passport unless it's a really urgent case. Now, mm. um, the problem is that as soon as lockdown lifts, as soon as everybody's gone to the draw, looks and said, oh, crikey, mm. um, that, that runs out a week on Wednesday, and there's going to be a, a huge surge of applications. So just be aware of it. So if you've got a trip planned, then make sure that you're you're ready to um uh, head straight yes. to the post office and get the check and send thing done um and if you before you book a trip make sure you're going to be allowed out of the country because your passport will be valid
Yes, of course, absolutely. Very good advice. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Simon called a travel editor at The Independent, of course. He's right about that because, of course, there are many countries now who will not let you in uh, as a holidaymaker if your passport only has a certain amount of time left on it. In some cases, I think, if it's only got six months left on it, they won't let you in. So you have to be very careful about all that. And I know that it seems like a long way away now. Nobody's really planning holidays. But trust me, um, as Simon says, if they do start suddenly lifting lockdowns and they do start suddenly going, oh, um, you know, you can now fly... Uh, to Mallorca, or you can now fly uh, to Rhodes in Greece, or you can now fly to Vienna and stay in a hotel. People will start wanting to do it. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking to Matthew Lesh, Head of Research at the Adam Smith Institute. We're going to talk to him about this contact tracing app in the Isle of Wight. The uh, trials began yesterday. A little bit of breaking news for you, though. Rory Stewart apparently has quit the London mayoral race. We were talking about Sadiq Khan only yesterday with Susan Hall, uh, who uh, said that his statement about the fact that uh, he had not been asked to appear before uh, any sort of uh, mayoral question time situation uh, was indeed untrue. Uh, I can tell you that she was absolutely right about that and he was absolutely wrong but here's what Rory Stewart says I've decided that I will not be standing again for mayor in the now delayed 2021 election it has been a great privilege to work with so many amazing people with such passion and vision for London thank you very much again from the bottom of my heart so uh, I wonder where Rory Stewart's going to end up next uh, that means basically if he turns up outside your door you're under no obligation to let him come in and spend the night because he's not running for mayor anymore this is talk radio A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock, of course. Dan Wooden here at four. He'll take you through uh, the uh, latest government press briefing that happens around about five o'clock. Boris Johnson still uh, saying that he's going to set out the details of a plan for the next steps on Sunday of this particular weekend, so we can look forward to that. Uh, it certainly seems as though there will be some uh, lightening uh, of the restrictions on lockdown, but uh, it remains to be seen precisely how that is going to happen. It is, of course, though, now just after 12.30, so it is time for our homeschooling section of the show and so if you haven't done it yet please do uh, gather your children around the radio or around the DAB or the Alexa or whatever it is you're listening to us on or even around the TV where you can now watch us live streaming on YouTube because we're about to speak to Theo Randall, chef at the Intercontinental in Park Lane. Theo, very good afternoon to you. A very good afternoon to you too. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, you're going to do something which uh, even I, as, as a, a rather what I would regard as an enthusiastic amateur, have never tried to do, and that is to make pasta from scratch. <laughs> well, it's very easy. I mean, you can make pasta... I mean, basically, it's just using flour, eggs, uh, a little bit of water, and you can make it in a bowl by hand. OK. And then, and then roll it out. All you need is a really decent-sized wooden rolling pin. OK. I've got one of those. Okay, well, so, so what, I mean, the, the basic recipe is 200 grams of Tipo Zero Zero flour, which is a particular type of pasta flour. Okay. Is um, that easy to it, find? It is easy to find. I mean, a lot of supermarkets sell it. It's just, it's just called pasta flour. Okay. And then um, you whisk up two egg, whole eggs, two yolks, and then it's a little bit like making cement. You sort of make a hole in the middle of the flour. Yeah. You put, you put the beaten eggs in, and then you bring the flour and the edges it together, and then you start mixing it with, like, a spoon. And you'll end up with this very dense sort of mixture. Mm. And if it feels a little bit hard, add like a tablespoon of water. But essentially, you'll end up with this almost like Play-Doh, plasticine. Okay. And then what you want to do is rather than doing it, roll it all in one go. Divide it into four pieces. That's so brilliant for the family. And then put all four pieces onto a work surface, a, a wooden um, you know, chopping board would be an yes. ideal surface. And then using the, wooden, the rolling pin, roll it as, lot, you know, as thin as you possibly can. And then the, uh, the trick is to cut it into three and then roll it over and then slice it. So you've got like little slices of tagliatelle. So okay. A little, little bit of flour in between. Fold it over and then cut it with a knife. And then dry the pasta. 
And there's loads and loads of things you can do with it. I mean, one of the, the most simplest things to do with it is making, obviously, a tomato sauce. Yeah. And, you know, if you have a few old tomatoes in the, in the, uh, the fridge, file a bit of garlic into some olive oil, get one of those hand blenders and just blend the tomatoes to a pulp. Skins, seeds, everything. And then just add that to the tomato and the garlic and a little bit of fresh basil if you've got it and a little bit of olive oil. And then toss that in the, the cooked pasta. Well, one of my favorites at the moment is uh, obviously English asparagus is in prime season. Mm. And that's making a little carbonara. So cook the pasta. And while you're cooking the pasta, get an egg yolk. Use a little bit of the pasta water. Whisk up the egg yolk with a bit of the pasta water, a little bit of Parmesan cheese. And then blanch the asparagus and then mix all three, all the items together. You end up with a sort of almost like an asparagus carbonara without the bacon. Yes. You have the bacon as well if you want. But Very nice. It's, it's a great for this time of year. Lo- lovely texture. Now, when you're cooking the pasta, does, I presume because it's fresh pasta, it cooks really quickly. It cooks very, very quickly. Very good point. I mean, if you if you dry the pasta for like an hour or two, yeah. then it'll it'll have more of a bite. So if you cook it straight away, it'll literally cook in thirty seconds. Wow. So, so should it when it when you've sort of dried it, should should you wait for it to feel hard, as it were? Should it be a bit hard? Yes. I mean, the thing to do is to lay it flat onto like a you know a tray with a little bit of the flour or a bit of greaseproof paper and let it just just sit there for two hours. Mm. And what will happen? The pasta will go quite brittle. And that helps with the, the, the bite of the pasta. If you cook it, then you'll end up having that sort of al dente bite. Yes. If you cook it straight away, it can be a little bit slimy and not so pleasant. And does it matter how long it is? I mean, do you prefer it to be long or do you prefer it to, to be cut short? I would say uh, about 20 centimetres long is about the, the, the perfect length for tagliatelle. I mean, you can do other shapes as well. You can do a tagliarini, but then it's much harder to cut. So tagliatelle is probably the simplest one to do. Right, OK. And as far as the flouring of it, as you're rolling it out and, and, and sort of cutting it up, do you, are, you, are you still putting flour on, on from the pasta flour as well? Yeah, a little bit of pasta Just flour will help it, but not too much because you end up, it sort of slips around underneath. So you want a little bit of, uh, you know, you, you want to be a little bit of purchase on the pasta and, and the, and the uh, top. So yes. The chopping board always helps, but... The reason I say wooden uh, rolling pin is because a wooden rolling pin has got more texture, so it holds the pasta together right. better. And, if, and you've got a pasta, if you've got a pasta machine, even better, but not everyone has one. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I was, I was saying before we had this conversation, I said, I hope Theo's going to be able to tell us how to do it if you haven't got a pasta machine, because, because that's one of those things that, you know, if you've got all the gear in the kitchen, that's one thing, but a lot of people yeah. don't. And this would have been really useful information. I'm not saying it's not now, but when nobody could buy any pasta, you know, it would have been fantastic for people because, you know, there was a point at which every shop I went to around, I guess it must have been around the middle of March or something, you just couldn't find pasta for love nor money. Well, you got me on the show too late. I mean, I, you, well, you, I know. <laughs> I blame myself. <laughs> it's difficult to get. It was difficult to get flour. That's that's your excuse. So yes. it's been difficult. But, but um, it, you know, it's in in Emilia Romagna, in the town of uh, city of Bologna. They they will never use a pasta machine. Everything's rolled by hand. Okay. They have these amazing shops like delicatessen. And all they sell is fresh pasta. So wow. everyone goes and buys their fresh pasta, takes it home and cooks mm. it. But they will refuse to use a pasta machine. They think by rolling the pasta with a, with a rolling pin, it's the most authentic. And it's the traditional way of doing it. So really, that is the proper way of doing it. Absolutely. And could you make, if you, if you were to be a bit more ambitious, could you make lasagna sheets the same way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, lasagna sheets are extremely easy to make. I mean, you just roll them out and then you, you, you lay, lay them flat and let them dry slightly. And then just blanch them in water. So, I mean, if you look on my Instagram feed, I did a, uh, an aubergine um, lasagna. Okay. And, and it's one of those delicious things to make. Aubergine's almost like meat. And so uh, you, you blanch the, the pasta and then you lay a tomato sauce, aubergine, a bit of tomato uh, sauce and then some mozzarella. And then yeah. just keep layering up with, with the sheets. And you have nice. a fantastic one. You can always make uh, ravioli as well. Just roll a long sheet. Get some spinach and some ricotta. Yeah. Do little little blobs of spinach and ricotta, a good inch between, and then fold them over, and then just push down, and then use a nut, sharp knife. Just cut out. Make sure there's no air in the pasta. Okay. But it's, it's, it, that is quite easy. To it do. sounds like hours of fun if you've got kids as well, because as you say, you can get all sorts of different people working in different parts of the kitchen if you've got room for that. Absolutely, it's hours of fun. But a little little insurance tip when you're making pasta: get to have a damp tea towel. So get a, a tea towel, put it under the tap, give it a really good you know good good squeeze and then when you're sort of in between doing things like you roll out the pasta you make you're just about to put the filling on or you're about to cut it put the damn detail on top of the pasta and that'll keep it from drying up and cracking because there's nothing worse than having dried pasta no exactly right and can you if i mean if you're making pasta is it possible to put it away for another day or do you need to just make it and cook it that day 
Well, there's lots of things you can do. If you're making a pasta dough and, you, and, and you've got too much, you can put it in one of those little sealed bags, those sort of sandwich bags, and freeze it. As long as you defrost it and let it sort of defrost naturally yeah. and not put it in the microwave, it will be absolutely fine. The other thing is if you make pasta and you just roll it out and you've got maybe too much telly-telly, keep it in the fridge. It will last for three or four days. Okay. Well, that's great advice. And I know that it's not an easy time for you guys at the moment in, in sort of commercial uh, kitchens and things. How are things... I mean, I don't even know if the Intercontinental's open, is it? No, the, the, the restaurant's not open. Theoretically, the Intercontinental's not open uh, yet, but we're, we're, we're all ready to get back. Are you, <laughs> what, are you, what are you hopeful of? Because obviously we're hearing, and I don't want to you know, take you off into a direction you don't want to go, but um, we're hopeful that, that there will be some lifting of the restrictions by Boris Johnson on Sunday, but a lot of people I know in the restaurant business are not all that sure they can make enough money if they've got to have so few people actually having dinner. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult one. I think the thing is, you know, you can't just sort of operate a restaurant at sort of 50% capacity because you, you right. you, you, you've got all the staff and things. So we'll have to have to wait until things uh, cleared up a bit. But, I mean, there's no... Once, once there's some restrictions are lifted a bit, we'll probably start doing some, you know, home deliveries and things like that and sure. then sort of gradually, gradually build it up. But it's going to be tough. I mean, the hospitality industry, it's, going to, it's, very, it's very tough, the hospitality industry, because you can't work from home. That's the point. No. So, it's uh, it's going to be it's a tough one, but no, exactly. All... And I'm also told even if you've got like you know a reasonably big room for, to put the customers in, you've got a pretty small kitchen. Yeah, you've got a small kitchen, so I think there's going to be restrictions on you know you, you'll have to work out how you can do it. Sort of smaller menu, uh, less people working, uh, obviously big distance between tables and there's going to be you know unfortunately there's going to be gloves and face masks and that's 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 the new normal i think yeah i think so well we've all had to you know change the way we do certain things theo listen i really appreciate you coming on thank you so much great advice on how to make pasta with the kids all you need is some eggs there's some flour uh, and a rolling pin it would seem so uh, get going and see if you can get some of that double o uh, pasta flour which some people are saying is quite hard to get but hey listen i managed to find some flour the other week so i'm sure it's possible to find it somewhere but it certainly sounds like a good thing to do uh, just uh, for the point of view of getting your kids interested in cooking i think it sounds like fun because if for some reason it messes up as i always say you yeah, don't worry about it just chuck it in the bin start again it's flour and eggs. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, we've got some calls. We're going to hear from Plank of the Week. And also, of course, it's Archie's birthday. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear baby Archie. Happy birthday to you. Harry, let's uh, keep Archie out of the public spotlight. Let's film a video and put it on Instagram for everybody to see him. I'm reading him a book. It's called Duck Rabbit. What a lovely moment that was from Chateau Marmont. Thank you from Meghan and Harry. Uh, it is his first birthday, um, and apparently he's going to have a birthday cake later with no sugar in it. <laughs> Let's talk to David, who's in the Cotswolds. Hello, David. Hello, yeah. Hello. <laughs> um, I think it may be of interest to you, but um, may not. Um, I was a junior house physician during A&E yes. in James's Ballot in the last flu pandemic. Oh, really? Which was, which was the so-called Hong Kong flu, um, which actually didn't come from Hong Kong. It came from mainland China. Uh -huh. um, and um, it was... There were 80,000 deaths. Those are the government statistics. English deaths. English deaths, yeah. And were you, yeah. uh, were you at risk at any time when, as, a, as, a, as a medical practitioner? I was young and uh, I needed the money because I, I was filling in between two jobs. Right. So but what I'm, what, what I'm saying is, David, were you, were you then all sort of masked up? Did you have to have all sorts of uh, protective no, equipment? No, not at all. No, not at all. We were careful with hygiene, obviously. Right. Washing hands and things, but that was about it, really. Right. Um, and was there any kind of particular problem for doctors and nurses in the front line? I mean, some of them got the flu. It was the H3N2 virus, right. which is still rumbling around now. OK. And, um, but presumably it wasn't as deadly as this one, though. 
Well, I don't know. 80,000 English deaths were pretty high. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, we haven't finished with this one yet. No, we haven't. We're at sort of 30,000 already, aren't we? My observation is that um, this seems to be more rapidly spread, spreading than any other disease I've ever seen. In yes, time. yes, I I'm think that's the problem. now, and it's highly infectious, and that's why these precautions are so good. No, I get that. Listen, Dave, your phone line's cracking up a bit, so I'm, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to talk to Malcolm in a second. Before we do that, though, I did say earlier, we did film Plank of the Week yesterday uh, in the company of Patrick Christie's and Emily Carver, and a lot of you have already seen it and said it's one of the funniest ever. So let's have a listen uh, to what happened when Owen Jones's name came up. I do wonder, Patrick, whether Owen Jones spends his entire life with a microphone, with, with, a, with a magnifying glass, you know, looking at all the uh, people that are on TV with bookcases behind them, looking for anything that he can pick up. And clearly, he made a massive blunder here, didn't he? Oh, he absolutely did. But I mean, I think it says more about Owen Jones, certainly, than it does about Michael Goh's book collection. You'd be pleased to see, Mike, as well, that I've got no books behind me here. You know that I don't <laughs> read. So it would, just be, it would just be several copies of Wayne Rooney's autobiography, although I have... I have a rather fruity number about that period that Germany doesn't like to talk about. So uh, we might have we might have done that. But um, but no, look, I think it said more about Owen Jones than anything else, didn't it, really? And of course, you're allowed to read stuff that you disagree with. Right. In fact, it helps. Are you? Oh, I thought that had been outlawed by the left. I thought you weren't allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is it, isn't it? I mean, does he does he just want just, you know, the relentless kind of right wing books that are there? Michael Gove can't deviate whatsoever from what is what his political uh, ideology is. No, of course, you're allowed to read stuff that you don't agree with. That's, yes. that's the rules. Go to YouTube and you can watch all that uh, in its glorious Technicolor. You can also listen to it as a podcast now as well, uh, where you can find it uh, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham's feed, uh, which is on iTunes, it's on Acast, and of course it's on Spotify uh, if you're on that as well. Let's go back to the phones. Malcolm uh, is in Oxford. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mike. How, How are, are you, you sir? Today? I'm very well indeed. Very Good. well. Slightly disappointed I couldn't get to the end of uh, the Happy Birthday song without bursting out laughing, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, Mike, confusion. Yes. We have a Labour minister, a Labour minister Shadow. that acts as a... Uh, she's a doctor on the front line. Oh, yeah. Risking her life. So we keep being told, to, yeah. Yeah, long, according to John Ashworth. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, the forefront. What I can't understand is, what was she doing in the House of Commons when she should really have been using the technical facilities on video calling rather mm. than being there in person. Well, it's but a very good question. I assume, I think it was, I think I'm right in saying it was her first appearance in that role and perhaps she felt that she had to make a stand and I think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give her a hard time necessarily for that but what I would say is that all this fuss about the tone and people are having to go at Matt Hancock and say he shouldn't be talking to a woman about the tone that she uses. He didn't actually talk about her tone. He said the tone because I think he's getting increasingly fed up, not surprisingly, with being accused by members of the Labour Party uh, of deliberately causing people's deaths. Well, the thing is, Mike, the Matt Hancock's and others have been accused of being responsible for the death of thousands of people. Yeah. That is an absolute disgrace. It is. It's, an, it's a libel, apart from anything else, because well, to think that yeah. any, any minister of the Crown, of this nation, would actively, um, in some way, you know, promote the death of people is, is quite a disgusting thing to say. Well, the thing is, uh, under law, if you're responsible for the death of somebody, it's either murder, corporate manslaughter, or manslaughter. Yeah, exactly you know, right. There's no... This government is doing the best that it can with the information they are given by the so-called experts. Yeah. The expert that's had an extra whatever... When they can be bothered to come in, out from under the duvet. It's, well, heaven forbid. You know. But the thing is, when these experts tell the government, the government has to listen. If they don't listen, they'll be accused of ignoring the experts. It's a no-win situation. Well, it is, but also I don't think there's any need for it, you know? Keir Starmer has a reasonable tone about his uh, conversations with Boris Johnson. He can be critical of the government. I don't think he's right to ask the questions that he's asking. I would prefer to hear Keir Starmer asking questions about the financial situation now rather than to continue to bang on and on about the same old stuff about whether, you know, the mistake was made, that not enough testing was done. And I mean, you know, in some ways, 
If that's true, then, of course, it should be discussed at some point. But during Prime Minister's questions, I think most people in this country would rather hear the answer to what is happening about the furloughs, what is happening about the, the, the banking support, what is happening about the financial state of most people's um, home economies now, right? Not all this nonsense about why you you know, allowing people to die and don't you feel like you should apologise for all of these poor families. And once again, quoting BMA studies, you know, BMA studies are not to be trusted. It's as simple as that. Well, um, I don't think Prime Minister Blair um, was accused or accepted or anything else with the hundreds of thousands of deaths caused by the bombing in an illegal war. So, you know, people have short memories. Well, they certainly do. Don't forget the Chilcot inquiry, you know. Absolutely. Didn't find anything that had gone wrong. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It really anyway, is. Keep well. Thank you, sir. Malcolm, take care of yourself. Very kind. Great to talk to all the people that we spoke to today. Uh, if you do uh, try to get through to us and you aren't uh, successful, please don't give up because we are very busy at the moment. We've got masses of new listeners, masses of new um, viewers on YouTube. The numbers are absolutely going through the roof and I'm very, very grateful to all of you uh, who have found the home of Common Sense and are continuing uh, to stay with us because we are, without question, the only place that wants to hear what you have to say and wants to know what questions you would like to ask. Let's talk to Paul uh, in Wolverhampton. Hello, Paul. Hello, mate. You all right? Yeah, very well, sir. What, what can I do for you? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, the one is I'm a little sceptical on the data that they're giving out for the um, death yes. toll. right. I mean, the good thing is that we're doing, we're giving a very, very honest um, death toll rate. Right. Nobody else is. No, um, like all the different companies, countries and what have you. But um, the biggest problem is, I think it's going to be higher than what it actually is because I don't know whether you know the protocol. Mm. My wife is um, a funeral director. Okay. <laughs> and, and what it is, is at the moment, that all registering deaths, that there used to be a part one and a part two. Right. And that came through when, you know, the Harold Shipman. Oh, yes. Basically, uh, so the first part is the only part that they need now. Now, on that, they're, they're giving the medical history of if they've got any underlying. But if, it's, if they've been in, uh, like, if they're in a care home or something like that, or they've been at home where somebody's had COVID, it will go on the list. Yeah. But it could be down at number 10, but because they're not being tested, the um, national, the Office of National Statistics are taking everything on a death certificate that has got COVID. So they may have only, obviously, this is where it comes um, died of or died with. Yes. But they haven't been tested to, to confirm that they had got corona. So I think these figures that we're getting, I mean, everyone is a sad one, obviously. Right. But everyone that we're getting at the moment, is, I think it's a lot higher than what it actually is. So are you saying that there should be more, the death figure should be higher or it actually should be lower? I think it, I think they, when they actually, if they were able to test everybody that has passed in the, the last couple of, which they're not going to be able to, because the biggest problem we've got is the coroners are so overrun yes. that they're passing them back to the doctors and saying, no, well, basically we'll you can confirm that they have passed away, but they're looking at their medical history. Mm. But if there's been any signs of COVID within either the care home or at home or people that look after them or whatever, it's going on the list. Yes. No, I think you're absolutely right, Paul. Listen, thanks very much indeed. We've got to run because we're right near the end of the show and Ian Collins is coming up next after one o'clock. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.